And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Culture Calculus. I'm Kavitha Davidson for The Athletic, joined by my co-host, Jason Jones. And we are incredibly honored to welcome the GOAT, the Hall of Famer, Ms. Claire Smith to the pod. Claire, how are you doing today? I'm fine, Kavitha, as I uh, mess up your name again. That's all right. <laughs> I'm just going to call you Miss K. How's that? That's so perfect. That's absolutely perfect. I can't tell you how many iterations of nicknames I have gone through over the years. So <laughs> I bet. I bet. I'm, you know, trying to put the childhood list behind me and I'm not <laughs> succeeding too well. So I apologize. No, not, not at all. And hello, Jason from sunny California. Is it still raining in the Bay Area? Well, the rain has stopped a little. So we have a little clarity right now. It's a little clear outside. I couldn't get my run in yet just because it's still, you know, when I tried, it started sprinkling again, but it's not like it was yesterday, like it was during that Niner game. Right. <laughs> oh, wow. It would have been uh, just terrible to have those um, baseball games there this past weekend in retrospect, right? The Dodgers did you all a favor. <laughs> I, I can't, as a, as a lifelong Dodger fan, I can't say they did me a favor. <laughs> same here, same here. Uh, yeah, yeah. I would have gladly have watched them slough around in the rain this week. <laughs> okay. The grass okay. is literally always greener. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, well, we have all kinds of things to talk about. Obviously, the World Series starts this week. Um, and, you know, there's there's a lot of things going on in the world of baseball and the world of sports. But first of all, you know, I think we wanted to start... Claire, we were very, very honored and very lucky when you when you wrote this beautiful piece on Dusty Baker for us. Um, and I kind of just wanted to go through like, you know, what Dusty means to you and where, um, you know, as somebody who has covered the sport for so many decades, kind of where uh, where you hoped his presence as another veteran and very, very respected figure in this sport, what his presence would do for this Astros team that very clearly needed some rehabilitation. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I've known Dusty since the mid seventies when I was just a, uh, just a hyperactive Dodger fan in the Philadelphia area. Very unusual, very unique thing to be, but um, because the Phillies of, of your hadn't done a really great job of, developing African-American stars that they didn't boo off of the field, a la Dick Allen. Um, a lot of African-Americans in the area remained Dodger fans because of Jackie Robinson. Um, we didn't have the, the pleasure, if you will, of developing a Willie Mays, uh, uh, Willie Starge or Roberto Clemente, cities that put someone up there that looked like us and and someone that looked like us that the city loves. So 
you go to Dodger games in Philadelphia and almost every African-American in the stand was a Dodger fan. So I grew up as a Dodger fan handed down to me from my mom. I met Dusty as an autograph seeker. And then when I started covering, I met Dusty at the, uh, towards the end of his career, he was with the Oakland A's. So we've known each other a long, long time. Um, he's always fascinated me because of his stroll through the game is a stroll, literally a stroll through history. Um, how many people can say that they were both the teammates of Satchel Paige and Henry Aaron and managed Bobby, uh, uh, whose hero was Bobby Bonds, who was um, babysat for by Bobby's mm -hmm. wife, who then later mar uh, managed Barry and then Sammy and then uh, Bryce Harper, and now the the bad boy Houston Astros, if you will. <laughs> he hasn't um, seen a challenge that he couldn't uh, face and usually master. He is such a cool guy that I think he's got to be the youngest 72-year-old in the history of, <laughs> of Major League Baseball. Well, and I think when, when Dusty was hired to be the manager of this team, I think a lot of people were torn because on the one hand, everybody loves Dusty. He's so respected. Um, you know, he represents so much of what the black struggle has been in baseball, but also where it can reach its highest potentials. Right. Right. And at, at the same time, I think a lot of people were like, well, what if, why is it up to Dusty? Why is it up to him particularly to clean up this mess, right? Um, right? Did you did you experience any of that when you heard about the hiring? No, I didn't. I thought that um, that the Astros who'd spent the previous year and a half getting everything wrong probably um, would find that they made the most brilliant move of that offseason. Um, I likened it to what the Angels had done bringing in Joe Madden. Now, the mm -hmm. fortunes of the Angels haven't been great, but if you recall, pre-pandemic, the Angels were coming off an off-season where the team was just roiled in a tragic um, drug scandal in which one of their players passed away. And I think were it not for the pandemic, that would have been the biggest story on the West Coast as, as to how far that um, drug scandal um, filtered through the organization and maybe in, into the clubhouse. So I thought that bringing Dusty and Joe uh, into their respective organizations, they brought in bigger than life uh, personalities, people who were really attuned to handling a myriad of, of personalities, young, middle-aged, veteran players, uh, what have you, and also working with us and the media and knowing how to, you know, where the pressure release valve was and how to say, over here, look at me, you know, don't look at Jose Altuve every day or Mike Trout and ask him about his deceased teammate. So, I thought those were the two best acquisitions of that offseason 
and Dusty still should, um, he still should be the reason why the Astros win awards for brilliance in their choosing of him. I don't think there was um, uh, any person out there who could have done what Dusty's done. He hasn't neutralized the anger towards the Astros, but he certainly has muted it because people find it hard to do these two things at once, hate the Astros and love Dusty Baker. And I'm count me as one of those people, like the Dodger fan who hasn't forgotten 2017 <laughs> and hearing Clayton Kershaw say, it felt like they knew what I was about to throw every time. And, and I met Dusty back when I was in college. Uh, we had an assignment in school and we went down to, uh, back then it was, it was Pac Bell Park. And he mm-hmm. kind of did a little, little media thing. And he's asked us, do we have any, you know, any questions? And I asked him, you know, as a reporter, what advice would you give me? And I still use it to this day. He said, don't ever ask a question you know the answer to already. Okay. Said, what do you mean? He said, you know, don't ask me a question just to get a quote. If you know why Barry Bonds bats four, why are you going to ask me why does Barry Bonds bat four? Just write Barry Bonds bats four. <laughs> and I've taken that right. me to this day. And, you know, having worked in Sacramento for a lot of years, Dusty's loved in Sacramento. And it's, it, it, it makes it hard to, you know, especially being in Northern California where A's fans don't want to see the Astros do well. There is that kind of pull. And I, I want to ask you about this, going back to the Astros a little bit. People talk about the, the whole cheating scandal with the Astros being a reason why people didn't like them, but they had a lot of other things going on too. They had yes. the thing with the front office. I mean, there was a lot going on. Just, yeah. yeah. Knowing Dusty as long as you've, if you've known him, did you just kind of think, yeah, he'll be almost the perfect person just to be cool enough to not just deal with the player part, but the front office? I mean, there was a lot going on with the Astros. I bet the most relief person in baseball to, <laughs> was uh, Rob Manfred <laughs> because he spent a huge part of the Astros' previous World Series being just incensed day after day about the this the things that that the Astros missteps dragged baseball into um if it weren't uh the the front office uh person saying uh obnoxious and over you know over the top things to female reporters in defense of a player who'd been suspended for for uh, domestic violence, uh, that sort of thing. It, it just seemed to be one really big misstep after another. And you could see it on Rob's face every time he stepped foot on the field in the World Series. Well, when Dusty got the job, I sent him a text saying, you're going to show them how to win the right way. And he wrote back and said, yes. Who could doubt that? There weren't going to be any trash cans banging or obnoxious behavior in his clubhouse because when he was a player, there was no obnoxious behavior in his clubhouse. When he was a manager or a coach, it just didn't happen. You had these oases as a female reporter where you knew Mm -hmm. that if you walked into uh, a clubhouse that contained 
uh, Dusty Baker, Don Baylor, Dave Stewart, um, you know, Phil Necro, David Cohn, Don Mattingly, that you weren't going to have to put up with nonsense. No one was going to do something obscene or mis, uh, you know, uh, uh, they weren't going to be misogynist and, and get in your face with obscene objects or obscene language because there was a teammate who was bigger and badder and more well-respected who would just turn it around. And if in the case of Dave Stewart or whatever, challenge you, challenge that player to a fight because they just weren't going to have it. They weren't, that wasn't what they were about. And it's certainly not what Dusty's been about over the years. So he walks the walk. He also speaks the language of the young he can take you from the jazz age to the hip hop. Who else quotes Eric Clapton in the middle of a, a little dust up with the Tony LaRusso's <laughs> <laughs> and, and brings it all together and makes so much sense at the same time. Um, who does that? Nobody does that. Dusty right. does that. Dusty does that. Dusty does that. Right. So I am so happy to see the, length and breadth of the growing team dusty on social media and uh, i'm sure the astros are grateful for that too because he's bringing them the respect that they probably could have earned just by playing but they they gave that away and they have to earn it back and he's doing a heck of a job helping them do that you said something there claire that was so interesting to me and i think that women sports writers have, we, we don't all have the same experience, but we have some really common experiences for sure. And we all know the clubhouses where we're going to have a harder time. And conversely, as you said, we know the clubhouses and we know the players who will, um, who we don't need to have our guard up around necessarily, who will always have our back. And it like, I, I can only imagine Dusty was one of them. You mentioned David Cohn. Um, and I, I was at a, an event for the Yogi Berra Museum with David on, uh, on last week on Monday. And I, and I said, and he, he came up to me and he said, you know, I, I love your work. And, and I said, you know, the one thing I wanted to tell you, and that, and that I think we, we try to tell men in the industry when we meet them is, it, is, it does not go unheard or unseen or unappreciated that you prop up women and you prop up our work and you, on a broadcast, will, you read everything and you just bring up something that Lindsay Adler has written or something. And right. that, is, that is something that has been a common experience of, of us throughout the decades, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and knowing that they're doing it for, heck, all the right reasons – Steve Garvey was uh, one of the first to tell me, you have a right to be here. You mm -hmm. have a right to earn a living and do your job. And it's that understanding and that respect of our profession uh, as, as well as for the individual reporter that's always, always been, uh, if you linked all the uh, the oases together where you knew you were okay. If you put them in a chain, it's like a string, string of pearls, if you will. And, and you did gravitate towards those teams. You went to those 
quote unquote go to guys because you knew you weren't going to be snarled at or embarrassed or chased from the clubhouse. And there were many, many, many more of those types of players, coaches, and managers than there were the the um, troglodytes. You know, <laughs> there were so many more, but the the ones that go on the Mount Rushmore of that group certainly make room for Dusty up there. So he's always gotten it, and it's as you said. Uh, you take every opportunity to thank them because it means everything. I'm not a brave person, Jason. You would have seen me gone if um, gone from this profession if if Steve Garvey didn't come out of the locker room in 1984 after I was thrown out by the Padres and tell me that I, he'd stay there as long as I needed to ask him questions, but I had to remember. I had a job to do. So, you know, with that, I stopped sniffling and feeling sorry for myself, did my job that day. And uh, I never got to that, that kind of crossroads again, because in Steve's uh, words of wisdom, I found reason to keep pushing on. And 84 from 2021, I will not attempt to do the math, but it was a long time ago, but 30, 38 years ago. Um, so without them, I, well, I know I wouldn't be here. And, and certainly the support in that press box was awesome, mm -hmm. but you've all probably seen it when there's an incident in the clubhouse. The first thing your peers do is what they should do and that's their job they don't rush over and and push back and get in a, play, a player's faces on your behalf they'll do that later they'll they'll file their grievances and the bbwa will get in there and fight 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 for you but you want them to do their jobs you don't want to be that distraction that prevents your peers from doing their jobs so when the players do it until they the cavalry <laughs> from the BBWA and the commissioner's office, uh, then, you know, it really is the people in uniform who check themselves. And I can't imagine that. I mean, what you, like I said, you're there to do your job. You don't want to be the story. And, you know, especially the way we're all trained coming up in the business that you're not the story. Just, right. I mean, how, how did you kind of find your comfort again? you know that Padres incident and just to say hey I'm here I have a credential I'm here to work I'm not here to have the attention on me but the actions of other people are why I had this attention on me it took years and I'm not gonna lie if there's a strange um clubhouse and most of them would be strange to me today because it's been such a long time since I was a writer and a beat writer but Every spring training after that, I'd sit on the bench um, down in Fort Lauderdale, going into a clubhouse filled with Yankees, having covered that team forever, but still just trying to catch my breath and not hyperventilate and trying to put 
I guess what would be diagnosed as trauma, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, if you will, it never leaves you. You just have to lasso it and pull it back in every single time it wants to to reach out and grab you again and stop you at the door. Um, having said that, I know how blessed I was that I had. This is my 40th year in which, thanks to The Athletic, I got to write about baseball for 40 straight years. I had one really bad day. Uh, I have many sisters um, in the profession who during the height of their careers were lucky if they didn't have a bad day every week because they had to cover someone who was just impossible and ugly and, and setting out to try to end their careers. So I was really very, very, very lucky. Doesn't mean that one bad day didn't leave an imprint that where the wound is still somewhat raw. But I can't even imagine going through what Susan Fornoff did when she opened the, mm. the gift from, the quote-unquote gift from Dave Winfield. And I, oh, Dave, I'm so sorry. No, not Winfield. Dave Kingman. Dave Kingman. And it turned out to be a package that contained a live rat, that sort of thing. Um, Susan said that the the guys in the press box were more traumatized than she was. But <laughs> I can't imagine that she really doesn't struggle with that to this day. And Lisa Neas and Allison Gordon and on and on and on. Jane Gross, who was maybe four foot eight at most and had to confront Dave Kingman every single day of his Mets career um, because he was so hostile and she felt so threatened, um, physically uh, threatened um, by because he was such an angry man at the time. Um, I can't even imagine. I, 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 I was lucky. I was lucky. I had one bad day with a bunch of goofs and, and I must say I outlasted most of them in the game. So I guess that, that living well is the best, best revenge is my favorite saying. And I guess that's, I'll throw that out there right now. Well, you're extremely gracious, but I don't think anyone would fault you for, for maybe being a little, a little petty if you wanted to, because you're also in the hall of fame and I guarantee you 90% of, of anybody who might have given you a hard time didn't even sniff Cooperstown. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, my name is on a plaque in, in uh, Cooperstown. I worked with Joe Morgan at, at ESPN, and Joe used to basically make it very clear that the J.G. Taylor Spink Award winners and the equivalent in broadcast, we were not Hall of Famers. We were <laughs> uh, wardies of our profession, and our names were on the plaque. So I, I get the vote, and Joe calls me, <laughs> and he's, how come I have to hear about this from somebody else? And he's giving me a hard time. And I said, okay, Joe, I appreciate that. Now, I know that 
that how you feel. I know I'm not a Hall of Famer. And he goes, nah, you're a Hall of Famer. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you're just killing me, man. You're just killing me. Um, but it's a pleasure. The one woman who does have a plaque in Cooperstown, Effa mm-hmm. Manley, um, she's a Philadelphian too. So I just feel such a connection to Miss Manley and all that she did for the Negro Leagues and the players that that came out off of her um, Newark Eagles roster into the majors, um, Larry Doby and and Joe Black and others. Uh, she was a force to be reckoned with. So I'm glad we have Philadelphia in common. That, uh, that's for sure. You know, looking forward, you know, the World Series is starting this week. You're obviously rooting for Dusty. What are you on the field? What are you looking for here? What do you what do you think this matchup is going to be like with these these Braves and these Astros? Oh, I just um I just don't know how National League teams measure up if you will because their their lineups don't seem to be as deep. That has everything to do with 162 games of practicing and playing with DHs, um, but the the national league teams don't get to do that. Then you f- swing it around to, well, why are our playoff games in the national league so low scoring? Well, they're they're arms out there on the mound, and so it's gonna. I think it's gonna be a battle of arms and some really hot bats. Um, on the brave side, um, Mr. Freeman woke up, and <laughs> and you know the uh, uh, Solera. I guess he's gonna regret not getting that COVID shot because he's <laughs> lost his job to a pretty hot, hot and skilled young man out off the Texas, uh, off the Minnesota Twins roster, who's looking just awesome at the plate. Then there are the Astros, who seem to have. Uh, a lineup that goes 14 players deep <laughs> and everybody's hot. And, um, and the, the Red Sox, for some reason, Eduardo, uh, what did you do? You woke him up. You looked at your Timex, you pointed to your wrist and kind of made fun of them. And then they went and outscored you 22 to one. Um, so you're facing a team that, no one in the last week has figured out how to get out. And they have those young pitchers who obviously aren't afraid of anybody. So I think it's really neat that this is a combined age, the oldest uh, managers to go against each other in a World Series at, with a wonderful um, connection in that, Henry Aaron hired Brian Snicker and the uh, Braves organization, and and he mentored young Dusty Baker in the Braves organization. So uh, you can't you can't dislike anybody, um, but I've had a lot of people say this is Dusty's year, and I'm not going to argue with that. I don't think he should need a ring to get in the Hall of Fame. He's, in my mind, been a Hall of Famer for a long time. Um, But if that's what somebody 
has decreed, then I wouldn't be at all upset to see Dusty get that ring and then uh, get to watch him on the stage in Cooperstown. I love that his mom is still around and he still watches his language because his mom's still around. So I hope that she gets to see him on stage in Cooperstown one day as well. Discover the latest collections from David Yerman, as seen recently, styled on basketball stars like Jaime Jaquez, Jalen Green, D'Angelo Russell, and others. David Yerman is a celebrated American jewelry company inspired by the beauty of art, architecture, and the natural world. The story of David Yerman begins in New York City with David, a sculptor, and his wife Sybil, a painter and ceramicist. When the artists began collaborating, their goal was to simply make beautiful designed objects to wear. Over 40 years later, the Yermans and their son Evan continue to redefine American luxury jewelry with timeless modern collections for women and men defined by inspiration, innovation, consummate craftsmanship, and cable, the brand's artistic signature. David Yerman's collections are available on davidyerman.com. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So is that going to be your prediction? The Astros are going to win this series? Dusty and his mom, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to say home field advantage is going to mean something. So I'm going to say six games. Okay. Well, Claire, we also wanted to talk to you about this very exciting uh, new role that you're going to be having next year at your alma mater at Temple as a proud Philadelphian, as you said. Um, it's, a, it's a journalism center, the Claire Smith Center for Sports Media. Um, tell us about that. Tell us about, you know, are you excited to, to work with students? I mean, you've already given back so much to generations of journalists who have come after you. Uh, but this is, this is something a little bit new. It is. It really is. And I've had the uh, pleasure and privilege to visit so many college campuses and as a guest lecturer and, and, and meet with students um, to talk with them about my career, but also the profession and just some of my beliefs and going about doing the job, um, you know, to honor your your institution of learning, your parents, um, to honor, honor the profession itself and, and the whatever entity you work for. So I always walked away feeling so energized because of the energy that the students send my way. Um, it's just an infusion of delight and, and promise and hope that I see. Now I get to do that on a daily basis, and that's very exciting. It's, it's intimidating, scary, and exciting, but I'm looking forward to that challenge. And we, we hear uh, Mark Zuma, the great Sixers announcers with us, and John DiCarlo, longtime um, uh, professor here at Temple. The three of us are 
getting a lot of help, but we're basically being asked to create curriculum and um, give the center meaning and and basically build from the ground up. And that's uh, not just in a brick and mortar sense, but in what we stand for, what we hope to instill in, in the first class through infinity, if you will. Um, that's pretty daunting and fun at the same time. What's the most daunting part about building a curriculum in 2021 when the landscape of journalism is it's like it's forever changing. I remember being in grad school in like 2000 and they told us one day you'll have to write stories that are like a hundred words. And we were like, whatever you're talking about. And then now we have Twitter where you try right. to get everything into the, you know, these short. Yeah. Robots <laughs> writing AP briefs. Like, right. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, I just can imagine, you know, how do you mix in kind of the traditional like, core values of journalism with also understanding that, as you know, we all know the new age or the younger journalists coming up have a completely different view of what the business is and what it, and what it should be than, than what we learned. Well, um, Jason, I think that you go back to the basics. Um, what's always going to be the key to 140 words or a long form uh, journalism of 3,000 words, what's going to be the key? It's going to be the written word. Um, if you only have a hundred, hundred of those words, then you better learn how, how to get what you want to say across in a hundred or so words. 240, yeah, you probably have a lot of room to play around in there, um, but you better know how to do that succinctly and also uh, do it well enough that people walk away and say, well, there goes the next Larry Whiteside, there goes the next Dave Anderson, there goes the next, you know, um, Kathy, uh, okay, Miss K. I am not <laughs> trying that again. Um, so, ah, tongue. Behave yourself. No, um, listen, having having Miss Claire Smith give me a nickname is far more thrilling than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think you you have to focus on storytelling and how you do it, no matter the platform. I can't walk into a classroom today and begin to try to predict what formats those students are going to be working in next year or five years from now or god forbid 10 years from now because we haven't seen it yet and they haven't seen it we don't know what the vehicles are so all we can do is try our best to prepare them to drive those vehicles successfully whatever they are and um, always remember that at the root of whatever they're doing is storytelling. So how do you tell a good story? You ask really good questions. How do you determine what good questions are? Well, that's our job to help show the students and tap into their own um, intelligence to figure out how to ask a question, how to read the room, how to break down um, walls that maybe are being built every day. 
we might not ever get into the locker rooms again. We have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. So how do you get around that? How do you make this vehicle Zoom? Um, how do you make it work if we never, ever, ever are allowed to get face-to-face with the people we cover uh, anymore? That's a really sad, sad thing to think about, but I think it's something we better start thinking about and better start teaching and and uh, rearranging the thought process and and how how you deal with that. So it's our job to help students before they even get out there into the real world uh, to let them know the things they might be dealing with, but also let them know that they're going to be the architects. We have we can't teach them what they're going to design in the next five, 10, 15 years. But we can assure them that with their creativity, there's always going to be journalism. We just don't know how to define it right now. Right. Well, Claire, you're not only a pioneering woman in this space that has been hostile towards women, but you are a Black woman Uh. in this space. Um, And we don't have a lot of Black women, especially covering baseball anymore. Um, And you've seen it all. You've heard it all. um, Good. And I'm I'm sure a lot of bad. And I wanted to ask you about something that happened a few weeks ago. I feel like a couple of weeks ago, there was like a, a half an hour span where like three super racist things happened in the world of sports. The number one thing was John Gruden. And uh, we don't have to get into that. We have talked about that a lot. Um, But then, uh, you know, someone that I think a lot of us grew up listening to and watching in the broadcast booth, Jim Cott, made a a comment. He used the phrase 40 acres, um, referring to exciting young Latino players that he wanted to see. And I think a lot of the reaction probably because it happened within the hour of the John Gruden stuff and probably because people are just exhausted at hearing, uh, you know, uh, microaggressions and code words and all of that all the time, um, you know, was, was, was outrage against Jim Cott. And then I saw you post, I think it was on Facebook, and you basically said, I'm paraphrasing here, but you basically said, listen, this is like misguided reaction I've no racism. I've seen racism. This ain't it. And I also know Jim Cott. And I think that, you know, especially people my age sometimes have to stop and listen to people like you who actually know the people that we're talking about here. So I just wanted to ask you about, you know, about about what you posted about, you know, your defense of him and and, you know, that idea that like not everything that comes out wrong is necessarily intended as a racist notion well i i hearken back to something that Faye vincent once told me um he said some people would rather have the issue Mm. so i thought that you know once it came out there was a lot of anger and i really 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 wanted to take the the people who were at their angriest and maybe sit them down and ask them, first of all, explain to me what 40 acres and a mule was. Just just tell me what it was. And see how close they came to uh, describing a program 
that didn't succeed, but what its initial design was, was to try to make things right for freed slaves. Okay, so the phrase 40 acres, if you're speaking to a time in an era where the Klan was born and the, and the Southern um, legislatures and everything were really, really pushing back on that. But when you speak to it, that wasn't a racist thing. That was a weapon against racism. So now, did Jim know that? Did Jim trip over his tongue? Had he been reading some history books? You know, how it ended up in a conversation about um, Latino players, no one will ever know. All I do know, having spoken to him and, and all, is that no one felt worse than Jim Cott that he used a phrase that still um, garnered so much raw emotion and anger um, at him. No one who works with him, black, white, whatever, would ever say that Jim Cott was a racist. But like I said, there were a lot of people who were so angry and so ready to pounce and how many ever bothered or tried to say, Jim, why? It's the most underutilized question that we have, but it's the one that brings the best answers. Where did that come from? Why did it end up on the broadcast? Now, conversely, my friend Doug Glanville, who's one of the most brilliant people I know, wrote an essay for ESPN that I thought was absolutely brilliant. And his take was, what if I were in the booth with Jim when he said that? And how would I have responded? How should I have responded? And as an African-American, why are we always put in position to having to respond to, to incidents not of our making, but uh, if he had been in the booth, he surely would have been asked in the days that followed um, why he didn't say anything, or if he did say something, why he did say something, and and therefore become a spokesman for an entire race when nobody volunteers to be the spokesman for an entire race or class of people, i.e. African-American on air, in front of camera, personnel. <laughs> but you know and I know that it's always, well, what do you think? What do you think, Jason, being a black man in journalism? Speak for all black men in journalism. Oh, and yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Speak for all black people in America and beyond America, in Latin America and, and Africa and around the world. <sighs> You know, it's exhausting. <laughs> and that's what Doug said. It's exhausting and frustrating. And no one, he didn't even mention Jim's name. That's, that's how I read him not being angry with Jim, mm. but being angry once again with the, the scenario. Um, that was a tough one. Gruden, I think, just 
needs to take himself and and jump into the ash can of history <laughs> and leave us alone. So, uh, what was the third one? You said three things. Oh, there. I. I... It was uh, something happened at Comic Con. It was, <laughs> it, oh. was <laughs> it was unrelated. It it, oh. it was what it was. I was at Comic Con covering something for a covering for a story that I was working on, and I got rapid succession alerts while I was at the convention centers about all of these things happening. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, and yeah. as a somebody who grew up as a Raider fan, I was at and I used to cover the Raiders, and people were asking me, "Well, why did John Gruden do this?" I'm like. I have no idea why <laughs> I'm not yeah. John Gruden's yeah. friend, you know, but it's, it, it, it's exhausting. But I, one thing I want to ask you as well is just, I know major league baseball is reach, you know, trying to have programs to reach out to uh, the African-American community, Latino community. I fell in love with baseball as a real little kid because of Fernando Valenzuela, you know, and grew up, you know, that was like, you know, I might have been three or four. I was the first time I went to a baseball game was during Fernando Mania. So I've had I have a long affinity with baseball, but it seems like as I've gotten older, people who look like me don't like baseball the same way I do. <laughs> Just what can right. you know? Then I look at the way some you know players, whether it was the incident with Tony Larusa earlier in the year and the whole unwritten rules of baseball. I look at how even my my favorite team, how Yasuo Puig was treated. It, mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. for being quote you know not quote knowing the rules and it's like he's just being himself right what can baseball do to continue to promote the game and communities of color and and kind of fight this balance of the unwritten rules the way things used to be because it's people they don't who, play the right way when we you know when we hear the way things used to be <laughs> that's not a good <laughs> we don't like hearing the way things used right. to be there are a lot of people yeah. that the things the way things used to be were not great so <laughs> yeah yeah and and also the whole let the kids play mm -hmm. unless it's it's a black kid or a latino kid black unless oh, it's jose batista flip. right like right bat flips and this and that but you know what the whole many uh, uh our machado uh, versus tatis in the dugout they don't even know what the <laughs> rules are. <laughs> you know, it's like, I think it was Pedro Guerrero who once said, um, I wish that someone would just write down the unwritten rules so we know. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it, it, yeah, it's let the kids play um, unless you violate some internal code that I've written on my heart for the last 77 years. So it's not right for Tony's players to get hit by a pitch unless, as he did with the young Cuban player in the beginning of the year, um, ask the other team to or basically say he would understand if the other team threw mm -hmm. at his own player because the player violated the unwritten rules. So it's, you want to say, oh, Tony, just, just um, help us out here. What, what is it that you want? Um, I think what he wanted was for Dusty, his arch enemy, it's like the Avengers versus whatever, <laughs> 
to not get to <laughs> not get past the White Sox. So he spent the whole time instead of um, congratulating uh, the Astros um, for their hard-fought victory, uh, he was whining about a hit by pitch. Um, I didn't think it was a good look for him. He's a Hall of Fame manager, and I just didn't think he did himself really proud that day. Well, uh, I think when when Tony was hired to manage young, dynamic black players like Tim Anderson, some of us some of us wondered how that was going to work out. <laughs> right. It didn't seem like it was going to work out at first, but obviously, you know, um, grumpy uncle gave way to a lovable grandfather type. And they did really well. Tim Anderson, uh, by everything I read, seemed to really um, get along with with Tony. And that's that's not a bad thing. But, you know, Tony, Tony gets this. He goes into this other personality sometimes in the postseason, and uh, sometimes you can say a Lasorda or a Dusty Baker. They they might know just the right things to say to get him wound up even more. So, you know, when Dusty dropped the Heraclopton <laughs> quote on him, I'm sure that just... Oh my goodness! That probably made Tony feel really old. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, the mind games are just wonderful, and and the the toothpick and the the shades and the, and the wristbands and everything. And Tony's probably thinking, "Why can't I be that cool?" <laughs> never thought of it quite like that that, that i like that okay yeah, tony used to be the sunglass guy even in night games and everything and and all but um those days are gone i guess uh those days are gone like back in the era of like jim leland smoking in the dugout <laughs> yeah yeah earl weaver uh what did he call uh two-pack uh, yeah. uh who was don was it don stanhouse his closer Mm-hmm. Two packs a day. Two packs a day. So. <laughs> Claire, thank you so much. This was truly a thrill and an honor to get to talk baseball with Claire Smith for an hour. <laughs> my honor. My honor. Um, I'm yeah. going to speech therapy so that I can not trip over you in this. No, day. no. And Jason, it's been wonderful uh, speaking with you both. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Culture Calculus. I'm Kavitha Davidson for Jason Jones from The Athletic. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to give us a rating if you can as well. And make sure to tune in every Thursday. We'll have a different episode, a different guest, and a different topic at hand. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.